Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all of those places. And then I also have a blog that I started writing in going on now almost three years ago. And the name of the blog is cagerredox.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right. Today is November 4th, 2021. And boy, there's some really interesting stuff going on. And this was uh, really going to be my segue into a discussion of this constitutional committee that is uh, supposedly looking at aligning NCAA authorities and NCAA responsibilities. I've mentioned it in a number of different contexts, and I did an episode, episode 45, titled NCAA Desperation Escalates, and that was right after the NCAA announced the formation of this constitutional committee on July 30th. And I'm going to go through a timeline everything that's happened since that announcement. And there are a couple of other things that have happened, one just two days ago, that I think are really important. And these go not only to what this constitutional committee is doing, but th these events really go to the future of college sports and who is going to be making the most important decisions going forward. So what I want to do in this episode is to identify three things that are happening right now, that are in play right now, that are interconnected, but haven't been treated as interconnected by the mainstream media. And a, a broad point that I've tried to communicate in this podcast is that you can never look at a single event in isolation when it comes to the NCAA's motivations and all the power plays that go on inside of the business of big time college sports. And you have to really look at the totality of the circumstances and always ask what else is going on at or about the same time that is really driving the single events that we hear about. And a good example of that is just yesterday, a story broke, and this is one of the three events that, that is relevant to this constitutional committee analysis that I'm going to do, but it really goes beyond just the, the task and the charge of this constitutional committee. Because again, th there is a battle, an inside battle, a family feud within the NCAA and the powerful in-system stakeholder beneficiaries about what the NCAA is going to look like going forward, what the role of the Power Five is going to be, and who ultimately is going to be calling the shots. And it's fascinating to me. And it harkens back to some of the themes that I talked about in the evolution of the relationship between big-time football and the NCAA and all of the power plays that big-time football has made. And I think they're, right now, making a power play that it's going to have enormous consequence. But this thing that happened just yesterday was the announcement of a federal bill 
out of the House of Representatives titled the NCAA Accountability Act, and it was introduced by Tennessee Representative David Kustoff. It had co-sponsors, so it's by a bipartisan bill. There's a Democrat from California and then uh, a Republican from Utah, Burgess Owens, who I've mentioned in prior episodes. He's a Republican from Utah, and he's a, a former football player of, of some renown. But those three representatives put this bill out there, and it would essentially neuter the NCAA's infractions and enforcement authorities and powers and put them under the supervision of the Department of Justice. I'm going to just mention that today as one of the three important events, but I'm going to hold off on talking about that bill in any specificity because the actual text of the bill hasn't been released yet. So Kustoff made a, a press release. He announced the bill. He made a statement on the floor on November 2nd. And the the process is that you you take your bill proposal and then it has to run through some administrative channels before it actually is published as a text and that hasn't occurred yet so i want to see exactly what this bill says before i talk about it in any detail. But when news of that bill hit the media, and this came out of an AP story, there was an ESPN story, and there was just a basic description of the bill, but I haven't seen any articles or any commentary that ties that bill into the other important things that are happening right now. This bill is really important because it is trying to accomplish what decades of external reform movements outside of government action, external private reform movements have tried to do, and that is to rein in this out-of-control enforcement and infractions process, which is largely the product of the NCAA versus Tarkanian case in which the U.S. Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision said, that the NCAA wasn't bound by federal due process requirements. And since then, the NCAA has been operating like a rogue secret government. And some of the description of some of these provisions is really interesting because the DOJ has the authority to just come in and swing a big hammer under that bill. But that bill essentially neutralizes that Tarkanian decision. And that's a big deal. And nobody's really looking at it that way. But I want to focus on that bill as a part of this narrative that's developing now through the NCAA's quest for relevance. And Bob Gates, who is the chair of this constitutional committee, said outright from the very beginning that the NCAA is in a battle for relevance. And, and Gates is a member of the NCAA Board of Governors. He's one of the five independent members. And I, again, I use independent in quotation marks. So we've got the Constitutional Committee. We've got this bill that was just put into play a couple of days ago. And the third piece of this puzzle was something that happened in late October, just a week or so ago. The Division I Board of Directors announced the formation of a quote-unquote transformation committee. And it's an interesting committee, and I believe that it is a counterweight to whatever is happening with this constitutional committee. And one of the things I'm going to do is look at the composition of this constitutional committee and then compare it to this Division I Transformation Committee. And when you look at these two committees, I think it's pretty easy to see behind the scenes conflict between the power five interests on the one hand and then the non-power five NCAA interests on the other. And again, that's been driven in large part by football. And this conflict is driven by football. When you look at the composition of this transformation committee, 
which is, its mission's not really clear the way that it's, it's been articulated, and we'll go through all that as well. But there's something going on here behind the scenes, and it's important. And one of the reasons that I devoted so many episodes to the NCAA infractions and enforcement process is that the way that Gates has articulated the mission of the Constitutional Committee in this alignment of responsibilities and authorities, that goes directly to enforcement and infractions. And we don't know what the committee has come up with, and that should be out any time now because the first important milestone on the timeline that they put out in August was this November 15th deadline where they were supposed to have some materials for consideration. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be a full draft of a overhaul of the Constitution, but the framework for the, the principles, and I think we're supposed to have something more specific. Everything so far has been very, very general, but that's supposed to happen by November 15th. So as I'm going through the timeline, I want us to keep in mind some of the broad themes that have existed in the business of big-time college sports, really going back to World War II. The first important theme to keep in mind is that this is a football show. This is a big-time football show, which means it's a Power 5 football show. And I talked about that at length in my Pay for Play series on the history of big-time college sports and the relationship between the institutions and the athletes. And then I also talked about this trinity, these three component parts of the business model that really are the Rosetta Stone to understanding the business of big-time college sports, and that is the powerful football interests on the one hand, the NCAA national office interests on the other, and then the March Madness money, because it is the only source of revenue for the national office. All of those issues are in play right now. And in this iteration of the latest power play by the Power Five and big-time football interests, it looks to me like you have the NCAA national office trying to align themselves with the non-Power 5 interests as a justification for holding on to the March Madness money, while at the same time ramping up some of their enforcement and infractions operations to make itself relevant for that single purpose to enforce NCAA rules at the national level. And I think that However, that is expressing itself in this constitutional committee and its work. It is not sitting well with the Power Five. And this is, I think, evidence of a skirmish that's going on behind the scenes. And you have to remember that historically, the Power Five has always won those skirmishes, even when the NCAA has tried to pound its chest and assert its autonomy and, you know, claim that it is more than just big time football. Big time football always wins. And as I, explained in my pay for play series there has been tension within the big time powerful football interests so we, we had historically the midwest and western schools really being on one side of the fence that i believe is more closely allied with the ncaa and then you had the southern football interests the mavericks the the, the interests that have really forced change in college sports from consolidating power under the ncaa umbrella to the formation of the College Football Association, which was a Southern movement, and then the Board of Regents decision, which was a, a Southern movement, and then into COVID, where you had that same rift and you had the Southern schools going forward. You had the Big Ten, the Pac-12 going a different way initially, and then they came on board. Now I think you're starting to see some of those fault lines playing out right now. And when we look at the composition of this transformation committee and the movers and shakers behind that committee and that movement, I think you really start to see 
that the Southern football interests are really asserting themselves here. And remember, this all is occurring on the backside of the SEC making a massive power play by getting Texas and, and Oklahoma. And I don't think that's over. Nobody's talking about that now. The realignment issues have just been pushed into the background, but that's all a part of this whole discussion about what college sports is going to look like going forward. But this is a football show. The basketball interests have been subordinated here. And I really don't think that there is a powerful basketball seat at this table. I don't see it. When I look at the people who are going to be making the decisions here, I think it's all running through the lens of football, of realignment, of market share protection, of positioning within the Power Five. And this is about dominance in the money market of big-time college sports. And when you look at some of the ways that the Constitutional Committee has articulated their interests, they have focused in many ways on the non-Power Five beneficiaries of March Madness money. And so they're trying to create an ally in the downstream beneficiaries of that money, the Division II interest, the Division III interest, because both of those divisions receive block grants, really big block grants, totaling almost $100 million from the March Madness money. So what the NCAA, I think, is trying to do, and some of Gates' public comments reflect this, is to argue that the downstream interests can't survive without that March Madness money. So we have to preserve the status quo, at least with the NCAA national office and its bureaucracy. And this is a bureaucratic self-preservation effort in large part on the NCAA side of the fence. And because of Board of Regents, the NCAA doesn't get a penny of football money. The Power Five keep almost all of that money, not just the regular season money, which NCAA doesn't have anything to do with anyway, but all the bowl money and, of course, the college football playoff money, the big paydays at the end of the season. All that money stays with the Power Five. They give enough of it to the group of five, I think, to keep them happy enough to not complain and also to mitigate the antitrust concerns if the Power Five just kept everything to themselves. And we've talked about that as well. But the NCAA is reliant exclusively on the March Madness money. And there have been discussions about the inequity in that. The Knight Commission, for example, has tried to make the case that some of this football money ought to be moved over to some of the interests that benefit now exclusively from March Madness money. That would include downstream Division I interests that don't have products that can pay uh, for themselves or, or make any money. And then all Division II and Division Three interests. They want this to be a massive welfare system. And the Power Five football interests uh, don't want that. They want to keep the money to themselves. And I think that when you look at the composition of this constitutional committee, you, you really see that the Power Five interests have been marginalized because I think of there, there are 28 members of that committee and only seven represent Power Five interests. So the there are as many Division Two, II, Division Three members as Power Five members and in the overall composition, the Power Five just doesn't have the voice that it normally would have. I don't know exactly what it is that the Constitutional Committee is recommending that has the Power Five concerned, but I think that the formation of this Transformation Committee, that the Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee, which has a majority of Power Five members, and, and Greg Sankey is brought on board. He's not involved in any of these other committees and has no leadership position in the NCAA. 
but he's been the most important individual, I think, in what's happened during this perfect storm in terms of dictating policy and the direction of the Power Five and whatever's going to happen in the future. So you have a much, much different look with this transformation committee. And I'm going to go through all that when we get to it in the timeline. But there's some just really important major themes here. And this enforcement and infractions part of it is really important as well. And remember that going back to the autonomy movement, when the Power Five in 2013, during the O'Bannon suit and the uncertainty of what Judge Wilkin was going to do there, there was a lot of fear because there was a concern that Wilkin was just going to blow the doors on amateurism. And remember, that was O'Bannon was the name, image, and likeness case. But in that autonomy movement, there were discussions among Power Five interests that they really wanted to be entirely independent of the NCAA enforcement and infractions process. They thought that the stakes were too high for the Power Five and that the NCAA's secret government wasn't really working in a way that uh, protected their interests. And when we go through this bill, this NCAA Accountability Act, I think you start to see some of those same concerns coming out in the form of this proposed legislation. When we get to that bill, I'll go back to exactly what the Power Five was saying in 2013-2014 when they were making the case for creating a separate classification under the NCAA umbrella that treated the Power Five as a special group of interests and also allowed them to do some things through autonomous legislation that gave them really an unchallengeable advantage in the talent acquisition market in the recruiting battle for the, the best talent in the country in football and men's basketball. And that crazed battle to either get a competitive advantage or avoid losing one, I think was a driving force in the criticism of the enforcement and infractions process and its unpredictability and its randomness and its severity and its incoherence. The NCAA enforcement and infractions process has been under the microscope for 50 years. You know, and Congress hasn't stepped in and the, the Power Five were, were making that case in 2013-2014 in their quest for autonomy, classification, and, and legislative authority. And you have to ask yourself, why now? Why now are Power Five interests and the three co-sponsors of this bill, the NCAA Accountability Act, come from Power Five states? You've got Utah, you've got Tennessee, and you've got California. And the Tennessee part of that's really important because this bill may have legs that aren't apparent on its face because this comes from Tennessee and was influenced by the James Weissman case. And I've talked about the Weissman case in some detail. And it is still in the prosecutorial phase. The NCAA sent that case to this new independent accountability resolution process in March of 2020, I think. And it's just been a just a really bad look for the NCAA from start to finish on that Weissman case. And that arose in Tennessee because Weissman was a University of Memphis basketball player who just got royally uh, screwed over by the NCAA. So we've got this Kustoff guy in the House, but perhaps more importantly, we have Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn also expressing some very harsh views of the NCAA and its handling of the Weissman case. And in some of my prior episodes, I actually used montage clips, you know, clips from testimony that I 
use at the beginning of these episodes. And some of those clips came from Marsha Blackburn when she was ripping into Mark Emmert at that uh, very first hearing in the Senate Commerce Committee on February 11th of 2020. And she has no use for Emmert. And she would be very happy to sign on to this NCAA Accountability Act. And then the other thing is that Tennessee is in the midst of a football probe. <laughs> They've done their self-examination phase and the NCAA hasn't come out with notice of allegations, but you've got the NCAA just refusing to accept the fact that its enforcement and infractions process is bad news and they are blind to how it's perceived in the outside world particularly with important decision makers who can shut the damn thing down. But this isn't some isolated one-off bill. This is a coordinated effort that dovetails with the Power Five's interest in what's happening with this constitutional committee. And then the other thing that happened in connection with this NCAA Accountability Act is that this organization, Lead One, run by Tom McMillan, who is a former NBA player. He was in Congress. Uh, he was a Rhodes Scholar. He's got a great resume. But he has this company that basically is an advocacy group for Power Five athletics directors. While this NCAA Accountability Act came out, Lead One sent a letter to the NCAA national office, and it was signed by 72 athletics administrators. I think it was mostly Power Five athletics directors, basically saying in a more polite way what this bill from Kustoff in the House says through legislation, and that is, we're going to do everything we can to just bring the hammer down on your infractions and enforcement process, and we're going to shut it down, essentially. That's what this bill would do. It would basically put the NCAA infractions and enforcement process into receivership, <laughs> into federal government receivership. I think that should happen with the entire NCAA. But that only begs the question of why now? And there are some circumstantial crumbs that we can look at that help inform the thinking on why now, but it's tied into exactly what's happening in this constitutional committee and then the Division One Transformation Committee. And this battle for who's going to be in charge and, and what the future of college sports is going to look like. I guess I should also issue a disclaimer of sorts, because again, we, we don't know exactly what's happening behind the scenes, but we do know that it is a fight within the big time college sports family. There are no outsiders who have a seat at this table. And when I go through all the people who are on these committees, you, you really see how the, the big time powerful interests and the NCAA interests have really circled the wagons here because they don't want anybody from the outside coming in and telling them what to do. And even though there may be tension between the non-Power 5 interests and the Power 5 interests, there is still, I think, a convergence of interest in terms of getting as many federal protections as they can possibly get to preserve the business models. In that regard, I, I also want to say that the entire college sports business model is built around transient convergences of interest. And you really don't know unless you are, have a seat at the tables of the inner sanctum, you know, and these discussions are inner sanctum discussions that aren't going to see the light of day and won't reveal themselves until 
uh, actual decisions are made, events play out, and then at some point, maybe some people will talk about it. But this is an incredibly opaque process. And that's just the way that the in-system stakeholders like it. Both the NCAA non-Power 5 interests and, and obviously the Power 5 interests. So again, this battle is important in terms of who's ultimately going to be in charge and what the NCAA's role is going to be going forward. But this is a a discussion inside the family. It's like there's an omerta, a broader omerta that floats over any conflict that's going on here behind the scenes. And that is that you don't talk about the family business outside the family, regardless of the conflicts that are going on inside the family. And that's part of the problem. That's been part of the problem in college sports for uh, really almost 70 years and the Walter Byers years and the culture and climate that he created, which is not a healthy culture and climate. It was built on authoritarian rule. It was built on uh, power plays and it was built on secrecy and it was built on keeping everything in the family. And of course, then you have to think about where do the athletes' interests fit into this, if at all, if at all. Because this, this battle right now is for power and it is for dominance in the regulatory structure that exists outside of federal legislation now because we don't have any of the federal legislation that both the Power Five and the NCAA tried so hard to get in 2019, 2020, and into a good part of 2021. I don't think that's over yet, but now they're having to sort out their interests within the existing regulatory structure and within the circumstances that exist in the fall of 2021. And it is challenging because we still don't know who's in charge. We don't know who's ever been in charge. And the athlete's interests aren't even being discussed. Now you have these performer statements, well, we want to act in the best interest of our student athletes, but there's nothing happening here. Nothing that's coming out from the, the spokespeople in these various moving parts right now that suggests that the athletes themselves are even on the radar screen. And that's just the way that this business operates. And the revenue producing athletes do not have a seat at the table here. And they have never had a seat at the table in any of the consequential discussions about the business model and the future of college sports. There are three students who are uh, on one or both of these committees. And there are two women in divisions two and three in non-revenue sports and then a man in a division one non-revenue sport. There is not a single big time Powell Five revenue producing sport athlete on either of these committees. And it's just a stunning omission. But what's happening right now has nothing to do with the interests of those athletes in the eyes of the decision makers and the power brokers in big time college sports. They're trying to just consolidate their power and position themselves for how they want to pursue their economic and commercial interests going forward. That, that's it. So let's get to this timeline and look at all the surrounding circumstances that were swirling around the, the rollout of this constitutional committee and then what happened after it. So you really back up to the NCAA's failure to get anything done on nil. And then on July 15th of 2021, Mark Emmert gave an interview to a small group of reporters. And I talk about that in episode, I think it's episode 49, maybe. But I, I talk about Emmert's desperate attempt to try to rehabilitate his image. And I, I think that really dovetailed with this sense that the Constitutional Committee talked about to make some changes in the way that the NCAA governs itself. And 
the relationship of all the moving parts. And remember in that July 15th interview, Mark Emmer's talking about just completely shoving 70 years of NCAA history and governance and its relationships to all the stakeholders right down the memory hall. He just disappeared. And all of a sudden he's talking about decentralizing the NCAA and sending issues back to the conferences and to the institutions, which happened through his incompetence with nil and they really restored home rule where the institutions were responsible for making policy and enforcing it and that was the model before 1950 in the early 20th century and then when walter byers took over he was on a monomaniacal quest to enhance the ncaa's national authorities so that was just a really stunning about face and then on july 30th we had the announcement of the Constitutional Committee. This came from really Robert Gates was the face of this. And that was interesting because Gates isn't the chairman of the Board of Governors and he's not the president of the NCAA. And I think this is the first time, and at least in the research that I've done, where a member of the Board of Governors who is not the chair has come out publicly as the face of an NCAA initiative. And I think that suggests that the NCAA was trying to rehabilitate its image, that Emmert wasn't the right messenger, and that Gates had some credibility here. So you have uh, quotes from Gates. You have a quote from Jack DeJoya, who is the chair of the Board of Governors, and he's the president of Georgetown University. And they talk about forming this committee, and they're using this regal language and this emphatic language for dramatic changes and transformative change and all this stuff. We've heard so many times from the NCAA when it wants to try to deflect criticism. And they say, this is the other phrase, the time is now to transform college sports. The time is now. How many times have we heard that? That is the NCAA's pat line for, oh, we've never done anything to deal with this, even though it's been on the radar screen for decades. And that the time is now because we're facing some external pressure. And that's exactly what's going on here. And then they, they do get a quote from Emmert. He says, this is not about tweaking the model we have now. This is a, about wholesale transformation so we can set a sustainable course for college sports for decades to come and blah, blah, blah. But in, in all these statements, they really don't get a sense of what exactly it is that the NCAA wants to change, what it wants to transform. Why is the time now? We, we don't get answers to any of those questions. The closest that we come is from a quote from Gates where he said that the NCAA needed to align its responsibilities and its authorities. And he says the NCAA has significant responsibility, but little authority to fulfill those responsibilities. The broader association cannot move quickly. Power is diffuse. And then he says, uh, we, until we can better align the mission of the association with its authority, the NCAA will not be able to play the role it should play in governing college sports. We cannot go on as we are. And Again, I took that language and did a couple of episodes on it, episode 50 on the responsibilities and then episode 51 on the authorities. And the fact of the matter is that the NCAA has very limited responsibilities and has, has been very successful in avoiding the responsibilities for the things that it uh, promotes publicly, like the principles in its constitution. And then its authorities uh, are really broad. And I think that the authorities that it has in the infractions and enforcement process, particularly as a result of this Tarkanian case, are a good example of that. And that's why I, I focused on enforcement and infractions, because that's where I think Gates was talking about. And they want beefed up authorities. And I think that that's why this NCAA Accountability Act that just came out two days ago is important because it ties back into that theme. But Gates doesn't give much detail here. And then they said, 
a basic timeline for this committee. And I think there were three things going on at the time that influenced the formation of this committee and this bold statement by the NCAA that it's really taking a look at its governance model and it's going to come out on the backside with a leaner, meaner, more efficient NCAA, but you had conference realignment issues. This is after the story about the SEC basically poaching Texas and Oklahoma was on the radar screen. So there was panic about what the big conferences were going to do, what alliances were going to be formed and all of that stuff. And then you had two other things that obviously were on the table, but hadn't been made public yet that I think informed the thinking on forming this constitutional committee. And one was the gender equity report, the Kaplan report that came out on August 3rd. And one of the criticisms there was that the NCAA really doesn't enforce gender equity issues, and it talks about them and, and plasters them on its constitution and virtue signals, but it uh, largely avoided responsibility for gender equity in a 1999 Supreme Court decision where the U.S. Supreme Court held that the NCAA was not, could not be liable under Title IX because they don't actually receive and then dish out federal money federal assistance. They are not involved in that. They don't offer any athletic scholarships to current student athletes. So they, they, they skirted on, on that. And that was a, a big problem for a, a lot of people. And so this notion of aligning responsibilities and authorities, I think, was influenced by that. And then about a week later, you had the NCAA Committee on Infractions coming out with its Baylor decision, which involved allegations of sexual and physical violence against women. It was just a bad, really bad saga for college sports. But in that decision, for the first time, an NCAA committee on infractions had to come out and say that they didn't have the authority to address the behavior because the NCAA chose not to regulate in those areas, even though all, they, they virtue signal in their constitution and they plaster gender equity and athlete well-being and health and safety and all of these things in their constitution. There's not a organic legislation that allows the NCAA to enforce that kind of misconduct. And it, it only regulates in areas that go directly to preserving the re revenue streams, to controlling the labor pool and fixing the cost of labor, and to micromanaging the talent acquisition market, the recruiting market. That's all they care about. And that's clear from the way that the NCAA Division I manual is structured. So there was enormous criticism for that, I think. And so the NCAA is, is looking at these big picture issues, aligning responsibilities and authorities. And I think it was influenced by all of those external events. And it, it is interesting when you pull out all the statements from the NCAA, Board of Governors or other people that are in this relevant time frame, and you go through them, the, the timeline really does tell a story. So you had that July 30th release, then on August 3rd, you had Board of Governors statement on gender equity report, and then another one on August 3rd, Board receives equity report, reaffirms transgender participation. I mean, they're just all over the place. Then on August 11th of 2021, you have Baylor provided impermissible benefits and violated recruiting rules. And then you have a statement from Mark Emmert on the Baylor decision. It was a public relations hit for the NCAA. And then on, let's see, August 
10th, so I'm going back a day from the Baylor issue, you had the board announcing who was actually on this Constitution Committee. And that's important. That's important because the, that's an inside, it's an inside job. It's clearly an inside job. So we have the Constitution Committee announced on the 11th, I'm sorry, the 10th of August. And then you had a, an expansion of the committee on August 12th. And that was, I think, to bring in a little more diversity in part, I think. And we'll talk about that too. And then you have a statement on August 18th, 2021 from Robert Gates. Again, he is the messenger here, at least initially. And he wants to talk about the, how the Constitutional Committee has begun its work and it's uh, there's transformational, transformational change, broad-based and inclusive participation from NCAA schools and blah, blah, blah. And he's just trying to reinforce his image as the public face of this commission. And I think that's clearly the strategy of the NCAA and its public relations people. Then on September 10th of 2021, there's a feel-good article on the NCAA website titled Gates brings leadership to Constitution Committee. And they're really pumping up Gates and they're talking about his uh, resume. And he is talking about the work of this Constitutional Committee. And they want to really streamline the decision making process to try to speed it up because it's cumbersome and, and all that stuff. That seems to be the focus. But again, we don't get a lot of detail. We get all these buzz phrases. He wants a more inclusive and transparent process and we want to make sure the committee represents a variety of interests and we want to be as transparent as we can possibly can possibly make it i don't think there's going to be a lot of transparency in what's actually coming from that committee and we'll know here in a, probably a week or so this is a commercial for bob gates no question about that and and he wants to talk about how inclusive and interactive the the process is but it is all ncaa insiders and at or about the same time Bob Gates did an interview. The NCAA has this propaganda podcast called the NCAA Social Series, where they're supposed to take on the tough issues of the day. And there was an episode where Gates appeared, and it was really interesting because it was good insight into, I think, what the NCAA is really concerned about here. And that is preserving the March Madness money, because one of the questions in that podcast interview was whether there were any issues that were absolutely off the table, that were non-negotiable in discussing possible changes in the NCAA's business model and its relationship to stakeholders. And Gates came out and said, yeah, the March Madness money is off limits. And he was making the case that that money was essential to the it downstream interests, the lower level division one interest, and then the, the division two and division three interests, which was a tell, like a poker tell in my judgment, that they're really going to focus on the redistribution of that wealth as a basis for preserving that component of the big time college sports marketplace, which in turn, of course, preserves the NCAA bureaucratic state. And I really think that's what this is all about from the NCAA's standpoint. And then the Constitutional Committee had sent out a survey in, I think it was late August, early September to stakeholders. And I talked a little bit about that a couple of episodes ago, but I'm going to go through that in detail. I'm going to do an entire episode on that because it was not good for the NCAA. I think some of the things the Constitutional Committee may have assumed coming in were not supported by the results of this survey. And it was an NCAA inside job. They didn't farm this out to a third party. The NCAA did this and there were some fascinating 
tidbits there that I think are going to inform what happens next, because one of the central themes in this uh, whole look at NCAA governance is the extent to which university presidents ought to be in control or whether we should just turn this over to conference commissioners and athletics directors. And that's a battle that really has been part of the discussion going back to really the 1970s. And then we had this presidential control movement in the early 1990s through the Knight Commission and the adoption of that as a model for NCAA governance. And that's been the model since really the mid 90s. And it's been a miserable failure. And I've talked about that at length as well. And now there is discussion about taking the president's kind of out of the captain's chair and putting in the athletics interest. And there was a statement that came out on September 22nd on the Constitution Committee survey. And it's interesting because it's very terse. And I don't think there was a lot to cheer in the, the results of, of that survey. And an interesting thing happens here. Gates fades into the background. You wouldn't hear a lot from Gates after this survey, the results of this survey are published. And then on September 24th, the Constitutional Committee dives into research, emphasizes important work ahead. And again, there's not much discussion about what the results of that survey were. There's talking around it. And then on October 8th, the next statement on this Constitutional Committee, all of a sudden, the messengers are Jack DeJoya, the NCAA chair of the Board of Governors, and Mark Emmert. And the title is DeJoya Emmert Update Members on Constitution Committee Timeline. Where's Bob Gates? Where's Bob Gates? And there's just like this two-page thing. And, and this is interesting because instead of this Constitutional Committee just doing its work and then just running it through the Board of Governors, there is now a divisional process which is going to slow this thing down. This is the first sign, uh, I think, of kind of internal conflict because it was all systems go initially. Then we get this survey and then all of a sudden DeJoya and Emmert are the messengers, not Gates, and we're slowing down the process. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> the same thing happened with Nil, and you have these self-serving quotes from DeJoya, and they talk about a, a two-step process, and one is to you know get these constitutional principles evaluated, and then the, the second step is really divisional, and then the board of directors for each division will have the responsibility in each of their divisions to look at how any of these recommendations are actually implemented on a division-specific basis, but that's consequential in the timeline because this really does extend the implementation of any of these recommendations. And then let's see, there's a statement on October 26th where the Board of Governors is talking about it, the Constitution Committee progress. And then they dovetail that with phase two of this gender equity review that the Kaplan firm was doing. And again, they're now they're talking about this constitutional committee and this two-step process. You know, we have the constitutional principles that we're going to take a look at. And, and then the second step is this implementation and evaluation on a division-specific basis that was not part of the discussion from the very beginning. Then on October 27th, 2021, we get this. Division One Board of Directors outlines plan for division. And the Division One Board of Directors announced the Transformation Committee created to address challenges and opportunities after a vote on NCAA Constitution. And it says the Division One Board of Directors endorsed a plan for action after next month's special convention that will allow the division to address its most significant challenges and more effectively meet the needs of current and future student athletes. Of course, the board 
created the Division I Transformation Committee, which will allow the division to act quickly after the 2022 NCAA convention. A full roster of the committee, co-chaired by Greg Sankey, Commissioner of the Southeastern Conference, and Julie Cromer, Athletics Director at Ohio, will be released soon. The work of the Constitution Committee will be reviewed at the convention and is in tended to provide a framework for each division to follow in updating its rules. So that sentence is important because they're saying this constitutional committee isn't directing the divisions what to do. It's going to be a framework and the divisions are going to decide themselves. And then this sentence is very important. It says the action of appointing a committee does not assume adoption of a new constitution in January, which means that this division one transformation committee is operating on its own. It's not necessarily tied to this Constitution Committee, and the work of the Transformation Committee is, is separate from that. And I think that that's an important qualification that they make here. It's very subtle. But they also try to make it seem like they're doing this in conjunction with the Constitution Committee. So it provides cover in some ways. But when you look at the composition of that committee, you're, you're looking at a Power Five committee, and this is about Power 5 football and disproportionately weighted to the Southern interest in Power 5 football. And again, they're very cagey about exactly what this committee is going to do, this transformation committee. And they say, let's see, the complexity of issues in Division 1 requires immediate organization and preparation. So there's no lag between the important work of the Constitution Committee and the Division 1 in addressing its challenges. And he says, we envision Division 1 will begin this work immediately, resulting in a parallel yet cohesive path aligned with the work of the Constitution Committee. That's interesting. And they talk about key elements, but they don't say what the key elements are. So we're, we're going to hopefully get some information on what this Transformation Committee is going to be doing. But I think it's going to be focused on enforcement and infractions. And I think it's clearly related to what happened just uh, two days ago with this uh, NCAA Accountability Act. And I'm going to get to that in, in just a second. But then the next day on October 28th, the Division One Board of Directors announces Transformation Committee roster. And we, we get that. And then on November 2nd, just two days ago, we have the NCAA Accountability Act. And the, the proximity of those events is not coincidental. And I think that... It suggests this transformation committee is going to be looking hard at the enforcement and infractions component of this, which suggests that that's going to be an emphasis of this constitution committee, which is what I suspected from the very beginning and why I spent so much time talking about the NC State case and the enforcement and infractions process and its importance right now to the NCAA because, because it requires national enforcement. The NCAA rules right now require national enforcement. And the NCAA, in its quest to stay relevant, believes that that's one pathway to relevance. And the enforcement component of this, these federal name, image, and likeness laws ties into that. And I talked about that in this discussion of the September 30th hearing and the need for the federalization of the enforcement process in name, image, and likeness if the name, image, and likeness marketplace is federalized through preemption. And that's exactly what both the NCAA and the Power Five want right now. And I think their interests are aligned. There's interest convergence between the NCAA and the Power Five on preemption. And if that happens, there's going to have to be a national authority. And as I discussed in my episode, the federal nil police, the bills that have been proposed, the NCAA-friendly bills that have been proposed for that federalized nil marketplace run through the Power Five 
time and the NCAA. And that's just the way that the NCAA and the Power Five want it. They want control of that police force. When you look at the specifics of how that police force would be put together, the uh, Power Five interests really outweigh the NCAA interests, but they both dominate that process, that enforcement process. Absent federal preemption and the federalization of the nil market and the need for a national enforcement agency, you're left then with the voluntary regulatory enforcement process. And I think that there is some dispute behind the scenes about the way that the NCAA is going to try to beef up that authority and that enforcement and infractions process. And the, the way that the Power Five see themselves in relationship to the rest of the NCAA and how they fit into the existing enforcement and infractions process. And I think this NCAA Accountability Act is just cutting the NCAA off at the knees in its infractions and enforcement process. But again, the concerns raised in that bill have been on the table for decades. So why now? Yeah, that's the question. Why now? And that answer has yet to reveal itself, but it, it will be coming shortly. And so I think I'm going to wind this episode down and leave to the next episode a specific discussion about who sits on these committees, both the Constitution Committee and then the Division One Board of the Directors Transformation Committee, because that is so important to understand. And I'm going to break that down and then do a detailed compare and contrast between the membership of both of these committees, because I think that really tells a story, actually it tells two stories. One, it shows the power of the Power Five football interests. And it also is another window into how the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries manipulate the authorities and powers they have access to in the uh, existing NCAA governance structure for purposes that they present to the outside world as being consistent with the values of higher education and college sports and the interests of student athletes, when in fact, it's really about protecting and preserving their commercial business interests and keeping the revenue streams flowing and trying to eliminate any external challenges to their regulatory authority and their business interests. Those are really the values that this whole charade is built around. But to understand the extent of it, you really have to go into the weeds here and look at who sits on these committees and who's on one committee but not on another. And then also who's excluded from the decision-making process here and the formation of the, of these committees, that's important as well. And I just want to close this out by re-emphasizing that you really can't look at any single event in the timeline of events that's, that's happening here and anchor on that. You, you really have to zoom out and look at how these single events are interconnected. And they always are. They always are. When you go back and you look at the important milestones in the history of college sports, it's not just one thing. It's a, a collection of things that combine to create a big perfect storms like we had in that period of 1945 to 1956 and then what's happening now between 2019 and the present. But then you also have these micro perfect storms and this is a micro perfect storm and it's just not getting the proper attention because the people who are covering college sports and talking about college sports and analyzing college sports don't want to talk about it that way because when you 
kind of break the code and you see the patterns, it just really exposes the overt self-interest that permeates the decision-making in college sports. So with that, I think I'll go ahead and close this episode out. I want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. 